0: as a hobbyist the most exciting thing about this for me was actually the plug bases
1: on the obsidian side you can deploy a giant gauze cannon drop a 120 millimeter base touching a table edge and just do this line attack down the entire table All these like really cool, interesting effects that are you know kind of on their own, and they all have very potent effects on the table. They're hungry, they're pissed,
0: and they're coming for you.
2: It it doesn't feel like a movement tray, but it's effectively what it is. It 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 just
1: feels and looks really unique. Um, The rule book is. It's quick, it's concise, it calls out its points with precision, and it makes the game very easy to learn.
2: There are few things better than stepping away from the screens, unplugging and sitting around a table to do battle with your friends. Every week, Third Floor Wars brings you the latest strategies, tactics, and reviews on board games, card games, and miniature games like Malifaux. If you want useful information on the games you already play, or new insights on great games other people are playing, you are in the right place. Craig and Ray welcome you to the third floor and the tabletop talk broadcast. Craig here on the third floor, and today we have three guests trying to convince me that I should be playing The Other Side by Weird Games. Now, you might know our first guest, Joe, from the Coordinated Strike podcast. Um, If you have not been listening to that or checking out Joe's YouTube channel, you're really missing out. Uh, I give Joe a ton of credit. He really was kind of the first person putting out any type of uh, material for uh, The Other Side. So, Joe, welcome to The Third Floor. Can you give us some quick background about
0: you as a gamer? Sure. I have been gaming for about 20 years now. All told, uh, on the tabletop and off of it, uh, I've been doing many, many podcasts throughout the years. You may remember me from such podcasts as Cheated Fates Radio. Uh, if you really go back, uh, 40k radio i was a regular caller on that particular show back in its infancy very cool all right now you might know our next guest kevin he's part of the uh, dive
2: bar gamers youtube channel uh they are also putting out some really good material uh related to uh, the other side so uh kevin welcome to the third floor can you give us a little background thank you yeah
3: Uh, i've been also been gaming around uh, 20 years since i was a wee little lad uh mostly rpgs
2: and miniature games all right. Last but not least, Michael, who's uh, Kevin's partner in crime over at the Dive Bar Gamers uh, YouTube channel. Michael, welcome to the third floor. How about uh, how about you as a gamer?
1: Hey, thanks for having me, Greg. I got my start in Warhammer Fantasy back in middle school, a little bit of Mark One War Machine. Um, and then through Malifo 1.0, I've mostly just been doing role-playing games, which is still the bulk of my time. But I do a lot of Malifaux and have been doing TOS with Kevin probably two three times a week since we started playing it. Wow. You guys have been getting some games in. What uh, what RPGs is uh, are you playing these days? Um I do well, I run a fifth edition game bi weekly. I do a Star Wars Force and Destiny game bi weekly. Um, I just finished up this year a seven year long Pathfinder game uh, that wow. Kevin was playing with us at the end. So very cool. How did like did you actually finish it? Yeah, yeah. Start to finish from level one yeah. to 25 gestalted characters it was a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> well, credit to you.
2: I've done many an RPG and have never quote unquote finished one. Uh, they always just kind of died on the vine. So that's cool. Um, and you know, one of the things that I love about uh, role-playing games, of course, is you know setting that feeling and that theme. So that leads us very conveniently to come kind of out of our first segment. So the idea here is is that uh, the three of you gentlemen have been um, really playing a lot of uh, the other side, and then I consider the three of you uh, probably. Uh, the most active within the community as far as getting games in, though I didn't realize you guys were playing twice a week, so it's even more than I realized. So the idea is is that uh, I've got 50 script worth of Abyssinia. I've got two fire teams painted. I've yet to play a game, so I kind of want to hear from you guys why I should be playing this game. There's different things that get me into a game. The first thing that will attract me to the game is the theme. So what's the setting? How does that setting, you know, translate to the table? Does it feel like you're in another world when you're playing or is it, uh, you know, just rolling dice or flipping cards? The other thing that I find interesting is uh, what happens pregame. So what kind of decisions are you making before your uh, actual models actually hit the table? Decisions that really impact how ready you are um, to compete. I love finding out what happens in-game. So there's a lot of games out there. And in order to attract my attention, I need something that's a little bit unique, something that's different. Part of the reason I've been playing Malifaux as long as I have is that there's a lot of in-game mechanics in Malifaux that I think are way ahead of other games. Last but not least, I love to paint. I love to build models, so we'll uh, finish up by talking a little bit about the hobby. So before we get started, um, I went over to the website earlier today and wanted to kind of see what uh, Weird Games says about uh, the other side. So here's a little blurb about the other side. The Guild's iron-fisted grip on the Soulstone train has worn Earth's nation's raw, creating a powder keg of alliances and enemies. Just when a world war seems ready to erupt... Horrendous creatures from a plane known as Malifaux tore their way through reality. The true battle of survival has begun. The Other Side is a game about allegiances doing battles across Earth in a fight for supremacy and survival. Using 32mm miniatures, players will control squads of troops, powerful commanders, and massive titans as they attempt to defeat their foes and seize control of Earth. Conflict is resolved through the use of decks of cards, allowing players more control over their destinies. The Other Side shares a world with Malifaux, but the games are not compatible. All right. So that kind of gives us a little bit of a feel or gives me a little bit of feel of the theme. Um, Joe,
0: can you kind of give us a little bit of a background of kind of the setting of the other side? So from a setting perspective, the way I like to describe it is we all know most of your listeners, uh, I assume, know Malifaux and know all about the breach and going through the breach to this awesome, insane Wild West world, Gothic core world of Malifaux. But the funny thing about doors is they kind of swing both ways. And so the other side takes us back across the breach into the world of Earth. So we have all the political intrigue you would expect of a 19th century uh, technophiled society that has been just inundated with soul stones from Malafo, highly highly technological, highly magical, and all of a sudden uh, there's this giant event uh, in Malafo where the Governor General tries to ascend to Titanhood, fails and is thrown across the cosmos. Well, he lands above the city of San Francisco, and he begins to move all the way over to the city of London. And it is in the great city of London that all hell breaks loose. A giant portal, the biggest that has ever been seen, breaches between Malifaux, And London. And it just so happens that this portal was on the depths of the oceans in Malifaux. And that happens to be where the denizens of the Gibbering Hordes live. So London is inundated with water and giant horrific abominations from under the sea that had been thrown out of Malifaux's land in a giant war with the Neverborn eons ago. So they're hungry, they're pissed, and they're coming for you. Yeah, it's it's really cool, and
2: I give uh, Weird Games credit because it. um, I don't know, you know what makes uh, Malifaux so interesting is the world of Malifaux, right? And. to take their their next game and bring it back to Earth, um, I thought was pretty creative. Um, Michael, what, what is it about the theme that really kind of captures you?
1: Uh, I got to say for me, the theme of uh, the other side that really gets me is just this clash of these four extremely di- different allegiances that embody very different themes. You know, you have the soul, power, soul stone powered, super mechanized force that is Absinia. Um You have, you know, the for king and country, king's empire that embody really well their muskets and bayonets. You have the crazed cultists that, you know, jump through their portals and move all over the table like crazy. And then you have the horde of the gibbering hordes that just will not quit with their endless numbers. And I think they always, you know, bring these core themes back to the allegiances in game very strongly. And I love that.
2: Yeah, I think that it's really neat that they, you know, really differentiated themselves from their flagship game in that way. Um, These are not things that we've seen in Malifaux. Um, And, you know, even though, you know, if you've read the fluff of Malifaux, you've heard talk of things around this. Um, But uh, it's unique enough. Um, And, the you know, the theme is cool. Uh, I have to say that when uh, I first heard that this was coming out, I was a little kind of you know what the heck's going to happen here and i think they did a good job you know getting that feel across um but i think the big question and kevin i'm going to ask you this do you feel like when you're playing the game that the theme hits the table um or you know does the theme kind of get you into the game but uh it's all mechanics once you're playing
3: well absolutely yeah um i think uh we've been uh, Mike and I have been playing through at least a couple of games with each of the different factions, and each of them feel very much true to their fluff. You know, Abyssinia is bringing these big, muscly kind of machines and stuff and pushing around the other units on the table. Colts definitely feel very erratic, not just mechanically, but in the way you have to play them to get them to work on the table is really fun as well. And uh, visually, the whole game definitely fits that, that epic clash between those two worlds.
2: You get uh, a couple of nice pieces of terrain on the table, and it, it really it really sings. Uh, yeah, it's beautiful on the table. Um, I mean, now uh, when you and Michael are playing, Kevin, are you guys playing at a game store or at the house or we do a little bit of both? Um, so we film mostly at my house. I
3: have a small room where I have a eight by 10 table set up or a four by 10 set, table set up. And then uh, every every three Sundays or so or uh, three out of the four Sundays in a month, we t- typically try to play at the store. On a regular basis.
2: And do you feel like you've been turning heads at the store uh, as far as kind of the visual impact of the game?
3: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think the models speak for themselves. Just they're they're so gorgeous. The the models, for the most part, the poses and everything are great. They really kind of draw the eyes in. And then uh, once we have the eyes on us, playing the game really uh, catches people. We have a lot of a lot of familiar faces from uh, Malifaux 2.0 that have kind of branched off to different games. In the meantime, are kind of looking back and getting interested in talking about buying new armies and stuff for the other
2: side that's very cool and joe i you know i saw you did a test video at one point where you're doing the um kind of a uh, battle report uh and
0: that was at a game store right yeah that was at a shop uh that shop unfortunately closed uh but i have found a found a new home uh out a store that i used to go to so been kind of feeling the ropes there it's not the best place to record i have done a live stream or two from it um then we're going to get back into the recording here shortly hopefully uh with uh, some new rig. That's cool. And what, what is it about like when you have people come
2: by and, you know, check out the game, Joe, is there anything in particular that really draws them in? Uh, normally
0: when we have the, the giant Titans on the table, they really kind of get excited and it catches people's eyes immediately. Uh, or if I have my gibbering hordes out, they kind of see these bizarre, uh, almost Cthulian type creatures on the table. And, and it really kind of just catches people's eye and they have to stand for a second and kind of look at it. And they always ask, what is this? And so I explain what it is. And I mean, it's really it's really something when we've got uh, War Machine players at the store. We've got 40K players at the store. Nearly all of them are stopping over and looking. What's really interesting is the amount of RPG players that kind of stand up, come over and, and watch for a while. And we kind of get to talk oh, that, with them. That is interesting. What, what do you think is driving that? I think it's the fact that the the visual is is so impactful on the table and the fact that you're not seeing a whole bunch of dice rolling, I think, automatically catches people off guard because they're not used to a game that doesn't have dice. Right. And so I think the I think the bizarre factor of that uh, assists at least in getting people to say, "Hey, what is this?" Whereas if you you know you see rolling dice, I mean, it could be a thousand different things, and you're just proxying something. But when you see something uh, as unique as this game, where you have the the multi base, you have these giant titans, and then when you start talking to them about the fact that the the hobby portion comes more in the painting and what you can do to the base than having to spend a lot of time assembling the models
2: yeah yeah i think um it, it it's a game that's relatively easy to get started playing um uh, because of the pre-assembly so that's cool all right we're going to take a quick break and when we get back from our break we're going to talk a little bit about what happens pre-game what kind of decisions are made before the models hit the table So the theme brings me into the game. Um, What's going to keep me into the game is what's, you know, the decision making and how much agency the players have and how impactful those decisions are. There's really kind of two different frames that I put that in. One is, you know, the decisions you make before the game. Um, So before you've even hit the game store, your models have uh, come out of the case. Um, You know, what, what are the different things? So, Michael, can you talk us through how you determine who wins the game? What are the win conditions for the other side?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, in the, in a game of the other side, uh, the victory points you get that determine the winner are primarily based on your operation, which is kind of like the mission, the scenario, or the strategy that you guys are playing. Um, there are four operations in the book that are one player versus one player. And they provide you with a way to score your points during that scenario, counter your opponent's points during that scenario, and how to utilize the core resource of the game—tactics tokens—in order to sort of push that forward and move that along. And is and you're both you're both fighting.
2: So there's four four different uh, operations, but you're you pick one operation for the game, right?
1: Yeah, and this is done through a uh, seamless one-flip setup, which is a really fun thing about the game. Uh, You and your opponent each flip one card, and that determines who's going first, the operation, and what the deployment is.
2: Well, that's kind of cool. Efficient, at least, right? Yeah. Now, is the the only way you can score is is via the uh, operations, or is there other ways to score points?
1: There are some other ways. Uh, Some allegiances have other means of generating victory points. They have some stratagems they can leverage, and some even have some assets they can use. Uh, A good example is the Gibbering Horde has kill trophies, because they're all about getting in there and getting things bloody. Um, If they go after high-priority targets with that asset on them, they can score some victory points that way.
2: Oh, so that's kind of cool. So kind of the secondary scoring is really kind of faction and, and uh, you know, and now I, I actually don't know this. What, what do you call it? It's not a crew. It's not an army. What do you call I oh, call it your company, your company? Okay. So, so the different company, the company you bring to the table is going to potentially bring its own ways to score.
1: Yeah, and those are all very thematic. So we talked about kill trophies for Jibbering Hordes. Absinia has a fun one um, where you can bring a stratagem that if your commander dies, you get a victory point because they if your opponent kills them because they died with honor, which sort of plays into a lot of the themes that are important to Absinia and just kind of helps mechanically bring that theme back into the game.
2: And, and are these things
1: uh, visible
2: to the opponent? So does the opponent know, you know, what, what's going to potentially get you points or how does that work?
1: In the case of the asset, it would be uh, the stratagems when you build your stratagem deck of six cards at the beginning of the game, which are kind of like feats, if you're familiar with how those work in War Machine. um, Those are are hidden from your opponent until you purchase them and put them into your hand.
2: I got you. But now once you purchase them and put them in your hand, are they revealed?
1: Yep. You would tell your opponent that you purchased one of them and you would plop it into your hand and they know you have it, but they're not quite sure when it's going to come up.
2: Got it, got it. But it kind of eliminates a little bit of the gotcha there, though, right? Because, you know, they may not have known that that was potentially something you were going to do, but they get a little bit of a heads up once it hits your hand.
1: Yeah, it all plays very organically and it's very fluid. Um, There's never really been any moments where stratagems have felt like a gotcha in any of the games that I've played.
2: That's a good thing. I like that. So, Kevin, um, let's talk about building a company. So, uh, you you sit down, you you know, you and I decide we're going to play a game. Um, How do you determine you know, how, how the company is built, like what are are the restrictions, the game sizes, things like that.
3: Yeah. So just like in Malifaux, um, you're, you're building the, the company and crew based off of, um, some already, some already information that you would know beforehand. So you would know, uh, how big the game is, what the terrain looks like. Um, and at that point you would determine what allegiance you're playing. So either, like. uh, to bring hordes or, or cult, you'd also declare your commanders at that time. After after you kind of pick those guys, um, you determine the operation and then you hire a company. So, it, so when you're actually hiring your company, you should know uh, what your opponent's commanders are, what their faction is, what the table looks like, what the operation you're playing on. So you got a lot of information to work with in terms of choosing which models you think will best suit that job.
2: That's something that that you get in Malifaux in its own way, and I love that aspect. So I'm glad that they brought that over. Yeah, and it works great in this game too. Game size, like normally, how big is how big is the is the game? Is it points or uh, stones, or how does that work? It's usually one to two commanders. Each commander brings a certain value. That
3: you can use to purchase uh, assets and units. For instance, most of them have around 25 script that they'll contribute to your army pool. Um, some of their bigger models, like Horamatangi, uh, only have 22. But he's also a a, a massive titan model. He kind of offsets offsets that with uh, the strength of him being a commander himself.
2: Oh, so okay. So so pre-game, I wouldn't say to you we're going to play 50 points. I would say we're going to play one commander or two commander. Is that right? Yep. Okay. And then, depending on which commanders I pick, that's going to give me the amount of script that I can use to hire the rest of my company. Yep. Uh, that's yep. cool. So, you may end up with technically different script sizes on either side, but that's part of the balancing mechanism, it sounds like, for the commanders.
3: Yeah. 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 If I bring Hora to my tongue, I should have less models or
2: uh, less uh, value in models, I should say. Right. Right. That's cool. That's cool. Um, Joe, I mean, there's only uh, right now there's four different, uh, you know, factions. Um, What um, can you give me give give me an idea of what how many models we're looking at for, say, a one commander or a two commander game? Uh, How much how much painting am
0: I going to have to get done in a in a one commander game? You're looking at around 20 to 30 models in a two commander game. You're probably looking between 50 and 60 models on the table.
2: Okay, so it's it's it kind of gets right up there with more
0: machine and and forty k in that respect. Yes, it's uh, it's definitely a company size game, so you definitely get the epic feel of the game again, tying back into its theme. That's cool.
2: How about uh, Joe? Is there any other decisions pre-game that um, are important that we haven't covered yet, or did we did uh, Michael and Kevin pretty much uh, bring it all to uh, bring it all up?
0: Well, they they talked a lot about the the base game, but there's also a uh, a fields of glory which is the organized play version of this which brings into the concept of garrisons. So in garrisons when you're going into a tournament you're not going to have everything at your disposal much like a commander going into the field you're going to have a limited amount of resources that you can bring in addition to your main list. The garrisons vary based on one commander or two commander in a one commander scenario you're going to bring 40 script uh, worth of units and assets and up to two commanders you're then going to build a single commander out of that available pool in a two commander scenario you're looking at 75 points or 75 script uh and up to three commanders of which you're going to build a two commander list uh for each game in that scenario so you get the you get kind of the uh crew building that you have crew building flexibility in malifaux without having to cart everything in your collection that's nice that's nice and i would
2: assume that kind of pre-game you get to you, you can check out each other's pool so you can kind of see what
0: you, each other's playing with uh, potentially. Yes, you would, you would have access to the pool ahead of time, uh, but when you're actually declaring, the first thing you declare is is simply what the commander is. You then build or what your commanders are, and then you build your forces accordingly and you reveal that uh, placement. Oh okay, so when I'm hiring, I know what commander or
2: commanders I'm going up against. Yes Oh, okay Okay that, that, that brings an interesting balance to it as well And uh, I would imagine, you know Helps with rock, paper, scissors And hard counters too Yes, it helps immensely That's cool All right We're going to take another break And when we get back from this break We're going to get into Really the meat of the game So when you're sitting And you're playing the other side What are some in-game mechanics That really make this game shine? All right. So the theme got me into the game. The uh, pregame stuff is pretty cool. Um, you can definitely tell that there's, you know, they've pulled some of some things from Malifaux, which isn't a bad thing because I think Malifaux is the best game out there, um, but it sounds different enough. Uh, so it's defined itself. Now we're going to get into actually playing the game. So what I'm looking for in an in-game mechanics for a game to attract my attention is I need something that's different and unique, not something that I get and I've seen before. So Michael, can you, uh, Give me something that really kind of makes the other side stand out for you when you're playing, um, as far as mechanically speaking.
1: Yeah, for me, it's definitely the the stratagem deck that you build and pull from during the course of the game.
2: Can you walk us through that?
1: Yeah. So when you're putting your company together, um, you get to go through the stratagems available to your company and um, whether you're Earthside, like Absinia or Malifaux, um, like the Gibbering Hordes. And these have a plethora of different effects to them. Um, from, you know, on the obsidian side, you can deploy a giant gauze cannon, drop 120 millimeter base, touching a table edge and just do this line attack down the entire table. Um, gibbering horde can call down lightning bolts to strike their foes and more damage if they're touching tide pools. Cause you don't want to be in water when lightning strikes. Um, Colt can call the burning man down for a short period. He'll move around the table. You'll flip a bunch of random cards. Each shoot will have different effects depending on, you know, what's going on there. Uh, king's empire can use their espionage to the fullest to confuse an enemy team to have them do something they want or even take an objective and move it it's just all these like really cool interesting effects that are you know kind of on their own and they all have very potent effects on the table that's
2: cool because normally you would see stuff like that you know being built into the units themselves Uh, but having them independent like that is interesting and uh, what, what are the restrictions as far as building uh, your stratagem deck? Is there a certain, like, limited number? You said mentioned six cards, but can I bring the six most powerful cards, or is there a balancing mechanism in those six?
1: Yeah, so you get any six you want, either from your faction or, like I said, if you're Ebsinia or King's Empire, there are, like, kind of generic Earth-side ones, and same for Colt and Jimbring Horde. there are generic Malifaux-side ones, and they each have a tactics token cost to them uh, from one to six. And that sort of helps balance their effect because those tactics tokens are the most important resource you have at your disposal in the game. You need them for everything. Gotcha. So you, you, they, they just, it
2: doesn't just happen, right? Just because you have the card in your hand doesn't mean you can do it. You have to pay for it.
1: Yeah, you have to pay for it to put it in your hand. And then you can use it when you have the opportunity to activate a unit. But before you do so, uh, some of them even summon new units. So then you could go into that one if you wanted. Uh, some of them go back in your hand when you're done with them. If you discard a card, some of them go back in the stratagem deck. The majority of them, I would say, once you use them, they're one and done and they get removed from the game.
2: That's cool. That's cool. Kevin, how about you? What is what is something about how, they, uh, how the game plays that uh, really turns you on? I really like the uh, plug bases.
3: They add a lot to the game. They let you have a good size amount of models on the table, but not have to move a lot of stuff around. While you're playing, and they can also, you kind of
2: describe? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Can you kind of describe? Because there might be people who have never seen these before, um, and they are really unique. Can you kind of describe what we mean by plug bases? Sure.
3: So each model in the game is on a 30, 40, or 50 millimeter base. And in some cases, those get slotted into a much larger base base up to 120 millimeters. You can have three or five of those on those 100, 120 millimeters, and they kind of sit on that like a movement tray almost. And, uh, Squads are usually made up of, you know, one, two or three of those big movement bases. And that is what you use to move around the table with.
2: Yeah, you know, I never thought about it, but movement trays or movement bases are a really great way to describe it. But what I think is neat about it is it it doesn't feel like a movement tray, like an old Warhammer fantasy. Um, I mean, they feel... I, and I don't know why uh, maybe one of you guys can tell me why but it, it doesn't feel like a movement tray but it's effectively what it is it 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 just feels and looks really unique
3: yeah I think a part of that is because everything on that movement tray functions as a individual unit almost and uh, when you're activating that unit you get three of them so you're basically activating three kind of almost models or at least that's how it feels when you're playing
2: that's cool that's very very cool All right, Michael, you know, Kevin talked about tactics tokens and uh, can can we kind of walk through what's going on there?
1: Yeah. So tactics tokens are your main resource on the other side. Um, and this is like my favorite thing, because for me, to like a miniatures game, it has to have some sort of resource management aspect to it. And tactics tokens are your stratagems, like we talked about. They are how many cards you get in your hand at the beginning of a turn. They're your ability to do your objectives and capture markers on the table. You need them to coordinate a strike in and out of units. They are they are everything. And you will never have enough of them during the course of a game. Um, And it really feels like you are, you know, commanding this this company and that these are the resources you have at your disposal with which to wage war. And it's not enough. It's not enough for you, but it's also not enough for your opponent. So whenever you use one of them, you have to think very carefully.
2: I love that type of decision making that uh, that's a not easy. B has an impact on the game. And I love that feeling, right, that you just you want to do three things and you have enough to do one. And, you know, what is that one going to be? So that is very, very cool. Kevin, talk to me about a uh, game like that. Uh, how many turns are, is a normal game and how much time does a normal, say, two commander game take? Each game lasts, uh, I believe,
3: five turns. I don't think there's any operations that extend beyond that. And then uh, for game times, ours is usually around an hour and a half. So 90 minutes, sometimes a little bit more,
2: sometimes a little less, depends on how the, how the turns go. And how about learning curve? Uh, so either you, you or Michael, uh, how hard was it for you guys? I assume you kind of, You know, hit learned it together. Um, seeing you've been playing together, um, what did you feel about the learning curve to going from I've never played uh the other side to you know, we can sit down and without even really touching the rule book, maybe but once or twice, we can get a game out?
1: Yeah, I'd I'd say that's that's pretty standard for us. Um, we took to it quickly. There's some terminology in there as a malafo player that's pretty easy to recognize and catch up on. Um, the rule book is quick it's concise it calls out its points with precision and it makes the game very easy to learn um it's been easy to teach to people and if you've ever encountered those sort of people that are very interested in malifaux and they play it a few times and they just you know feel like the death of malifaux is something that's a turnoff for them it's just as easy for those people to pick up and play this as well do you
2: consider uh kind of malifaux light i mean is it not as deep as malifaux um not that that's a bad thing
1: Um, I'd say it's not as wide, but it's taller, if that makes sense. So there's a lot you can use to sort of Pinpoint and, and streamline your decisions and what you're making and how you approach scenarios and the decisions you make in game matter a ton. There's a lot of emphasis on that. There's just not as many rules that contribute to that. Got it. Got it. Yeah, it's
2: um, Malifo can be intimidating um, for new players. Um, it's one of the things that I think that they're uh, trying to fix here with this third edition. Uh, and uh, if they don't have that problem or out of the gate with the other side, I think that's a real good thing. All right. uh, We're going to take another break. And when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit about one of my favorite subjects, which is how do you hobby with the other side? Okay. the Last thing. So, you know, we talked about what's going to Get, attract my attention we've talked about what's going to you know l- make me enjoy playing it but the reality is is what's going to keep me in a game is the hobby aspect um so kevin can we talk about you know kind of the sculpts um you know the painting we can't talk about building right um and i really would like to kind of find out um your thoughts about you know how to really leverage those plug bases because it's so unique to the game
3: like you said they're all
2: pre-made um
3: there is a little bit of cleanup work to be done on them, but other than that, you can pop them onto bases right at the store and play right when you get them, which is really nice. It's really good to, uh, to introduce uh, new players into. But once you start getting hobbying, they really start shining. Uh, just like Malifaux, uh, the concept artists that work on the game are fantastic, and they develop these really nice concepts with really interesting models that you don't really see in other games. And then uh, they're usually sculpted pretty true to those concepts, and they show up on the table looking beautiful.
2: I was impressed with the sculpts, um, especially for pre you know pre built miniatures, um, and for the material that they're built in. It's not your normal uh, you know injection plastic. Um, it's a little bit more uh, Uh, like kind of the guild ball plastic, for lack of a better word. But uh, they get some really good detail. Um, And, you know, to your point, Kevin, you know, there's some gap filling. Um, So I couldn't, uh, if I wanted to, you know, as anal as I can be about, uh, modeling, you know, I did, they did take a little bit of work, but I wasn't taking three different pieces off of four different sprues to build a head. Um, so that was kind of nice, but, um, how about, uh, for painting Kevin, um, as, is there anything about it that you've enjoyed?
3: Yeah, they, the models themselves have a lot of, uh, a lot of space for kind of customizing how you want them to look. Uh, they, they take different paint schemes very well. In terms of painting, they take spray paint really well. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the, the crispness of the models and stuff, like you said, in that nice uh, kind of soft but not quite soft plastic lets you really um, really take to different techniques and stuff with painting well.
2: Joe, talk to me about the uh, plug bases. What do they offer for us for a, as being a hobbyist?
0: So as a hobbyist, the most exciting thing about this for me was actually the plug bases. I don't know if you're familiar with a a fantasy battle game known as Kings of War, where they utilize uh, fixed base sizes and fixed units. It allows for some of the most amazing amazing, uh, diorama-style basing that you can possibly do. And the fact that we have a set uh, movement tray essentially on the table that is going to then be filled uh, with our unit. Uh, and that that is going to move around the table and be whole for as much of the game as possible, really lets you do some dynamic things from a basing standpoint. You can make uh, as elaborate a diorama piece as you want, as long as you can remove the models from it. Or if you want to do like we used to do in some of the playtesting, just have like a die that counts down the wounds. However you you choose to do it, uh, it really lets you do some cool things like you can have... A scene where you've got uh, walls built up. I've seen people do cobblestone, uh, cobblestone city scene bases. I've seen uh, and done myself like a desert scene or a beach landing scene, those type of things. It really lets you kind of embrace the setting and your whole army can kind of tell a story with the way that you can do these plug bases.
2: Yeah, I've been having fun. I've been doing kind of a jungle theme with the uh, Abyssinia and it is cool. It is very, very cool. All right, let's go into closing arguments, gentlemen. Joe, I need your top two reasons why me or anybody else should be playing the other side.
0: Uh, You should be playing the other side because, in my opinion, no game has a better marriage of theme, mechanics, and gameplay. You're, You're playing a game that is about flipping to glory, all about trying to get to the other side of your card. It's called The Other Side. And... It really immerses you in the game itself. it's mechanically very, very easy to get into, but there's a lot of depth once you get in there the The systems are simple, but the result is kind of like a symphony that's cool
2: that is cool. How about you kevin what what do you what do you think are are the main reasons someone should be playing this game
3: yeah the the strategic death is is so well. Articulated in in the game system while also providing a framework that's not mentally fatiguing. So we've played a couple of tournaments already and at the end of the day I want to play more and I don't think I can say that about uh, many miniature games.
2: Well, I can tell you, I can't say that about Malifaux because when I, when I get done with three rounds of Malifaux, like my brain hurts, um, you know, and granted, it's part of what I love about the game, but uh, that's interesting that you, you know, you can still get that depth without uh, kind of, uh, you know, making it hurt. That's cool. How about you, Michael? What is, uh, what are your closing arguments?
1: Uh, my my big two are flavor and function. So throughout the entire game, there's so much on everything that's flavorful. From amazing things to yell in the middle of a game, I think pretty much the basement of my store has heard me yell "Eureka!" when I flip my units into glory, or buzz saws for days shouted across the store. Um, and in function, just everything works very nicely, very well, very smoothly. And although it has this amazing tactical depth to it, um, it's a game that someone who has never played a miniatures game before can jump into with relative ease. You know, it's a system that's not wide, it's tall, and it's deep. And it's all about maximizing the way that you play and growing as a player instead of memorizing more rules. And I think that's really beautiful. That's
2: a huge selling point. Huge selling point. All right, guys, I have to say the three of you make a pretty good case here. Um, let's go ahead, uh, Michael, What are, if people want to... Uh, you know, spend some more time with you or get get some more material from you, where where should they go?
1: Yeah, uh, me and Kevin have a YouTube channel, Dive Bar Gamers. We also have a Twitter for Dive Bar Gamers, so you can uh, do the Twitter at us or check out our YouTube videos. Hopefully, we'll have some more up this weekend.
2: Yeah I've been watching them uh, Michael they' they're looking real good real good and guys we'll have uh, we'll have links in the notes uh, so you can get both uh, follow them on Twitter and
0: as well as go to the YouTube channel. Joe talk about uh, what you're putting out. Uh, so I have a podcast uh, coordinated strike. Uh, we are the number one podcast for the other side. As far, as far as I'm aware, we are the only podcast for the other side. Just stay with number one, Joe. That's good. <laughs> uh, true, fair, fair and balanced is, is what I always try and go for. And that's kind of the vibe that we have on the show. It's a one man show. So it's a little different than some of the stuff I used to do. So uh, I encourage everyone to check it out. It has been a ton of fun to do the show, and I look forward to doing more of it. Yeah, it's it,
2: it has been – that your podcast, Joe, has been the definitive resource, um, I think, on the other side. And, you know, hopefully the game, you know, gets more and more players, which means it'll, you will probably see some more podcasts devoted to it. Uh, but you're first, and uh, it'll be tough to unseat you as far as best uh, – as far as I'm concerned. And we'll have links uh, both to the podcast and uh, Joe's YouTube channel um, so that uh, you guys can – can uh, check that out gentlemen i really appreciate you all taking the time um and uh i will uh let you know what i think after i get all of these things uh painted up i to force myself uh, i signed up for the tournament at nova so uh and i have a hard rule about unpainted models so i've got a lot of work to do this summer thanks again guys thanks for having us thank you Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and write a review on this podcast so we can find more people almost as cool as you are. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube by searching for Third Floor Wars. That's T-H-I-R-D. We'll catch you next time on the Third Floor.